What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth, and I think this is the second episode in as many weeks. Yeah, we were in the studio this time last week. This feels pretty good. It's almost like we're back to normal. It does. We're getting into the swing of things, and there's a lot of Midnight Myth stuff that we've wanted to talk about. And I'm going to be honest, I could not wait to do this episode. If you've been a fan of the show for a while, one, thank you. Or if you're new, welcome. But we were huge, huge fans of Game of Thrones and Song of Ice and Fire. Still are huge fans. We have done a lot of episodes about the Game of Thrones, Song and Ice and Fire universe. And lo and behold, HBO decided to do a prequel, The House of the Dragon. We have all seen it now, Laurel and I being we all. I Hopefully you have too. And we are going to talk about Season one of the House of the Dragon. Consider this a spoiler wall because it is a very new show. So if you haven't seen it yet, we are going to talk about absolutely every single detail. So please pause, watch the show, come back to us. But I'm really, really excited that the world of Westeros is back, that we are able to talk about this amazing mythical universe and that we're going to be able to apply a midnight myth treatment to season one. And I just couldn't be happier to be doing another podcast. Yeah, me too. It's really exciting to be back here and it's really exciting to be back in the game of Thrones sort of sphere. Some of my favorite episodes that we've ever done are on the game of Thrones series One of my favorites ever is our episode on Bran Stark, and I would recommend going back and listening to that one. It's called Sweet Summer Child. But we did a ton of character studies of the show that I thought were some of our really good work. So I'm definitely proud of that. Absolutely. Me too. So we're going to talk all things season one, The House of the Dragon. But before we roll up our sleeves and get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Oh, you know what I'm going to say. We just want to hear from you. We want you to keep in touch. So hit us up on social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. We're also on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com. The very best thing you can do for the podcast is leave us a five-star rating and or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. That helps us find new people and get our message into more headphones. And uh, also consider supporting us on Patreon, buying some merch. Anything that you can do is helpful to us here at The Midnight Myth, and you can find links to all of that on our website. And uh, definitely check out Sleep and Sorcery if you have the time and you have trouble sleeping. That is my spinoff podcast uh, that is a folklore and fantasy-inspired sleep, meditation, and bedtime story series. So check it out if you like. Wonderful. Shall we move forward to the briefest of brief recaps? Take it away, Derek. It's a 10-episode season one, so I'm not going to recap each and every episode. So this will be even briefer than the briefest of brief. The story takes place 200 years prior to when season one, episode one of Game of Thrones happens. The Targaryens are the supreme dynasty of Westeros, and King Viserys sits on the Iron Throne, having gotten the throne when the king died without an heir, 
and the king's daughter was stepped over for the king's brother. Viserys is not a bad man, but questionable if he's a good king. And when his wife dies in childbirth with his unborn son, he names his brother Damon as heir. It turns out Damon's kind of an impulsive jerk and annoys the king. So he decides to name his daughter Rhaenerys as the heir. When he dies, Rhaenerys will become the queen and the sole monarch of the Seven Kingdoms. This causes a lot of consternation. The king ends up remarrying Rhaenerys' best friend and having several children with her best friend, including some sons, as well as Rhaenerys ends up having a marriage with one of the allies to the throne. That marriage, however, is a sham as the uh, her husband is not able to perform his husband duties in the bedroom. So she ends up having several children out of wedlock, causing great scandal among the realm. Meanwhile, she ends up marrying Rhaenerys's, her um, uncle Damon, to solidify her throne, her claim to the throne, having several children with Damon, and the king dies, and then the conflict emerges, will will the king's firstborn son Aegon inherit the throne as he is in the um, king's landing and is proclaimed king, or should Rhaenerys get the throne as the king had originally wanted and proclaimed to all of the lords of the Seven Kingdoms. The season ends with the queen's son murdering Rhaenerys' son in a dragon battle where the dragons kind of get out of hand, a portent that a Targaryen civil war is looming. It's worth noting that the material that season one is based off of is a book that George R.R. Martin wrote called Fire and Blood, which is the history of the Targaryens. It's not a narrative story in the way that The Song of Ice and Fire is. It's more written like a, a true history. And this is the civil war called The Dance of Dragons. A lot of different things, a lot of subtleties and nuances happen in between but in the broadest strokes, that's season one. It is the setup between two queens and their families, all dragon riders, ready to go to war. Excellent recap. Well done. You got a lot of that in there. I just want to quickly correct you because it's Rhaenyra and not Rhaenerys, but you would be forgiven for saying that because we've had a Daenerys and a Rhaenys and a Rhaenyra at this point and 100,000 Aegons. So <laughs> thank you very much for correcting me and holding me honest. I will probably mess up some of the names in this show. I apologize in advance. It's Renera, not Renaris. I think that's totally forgivable, but that was an excellent recap. I do like that you boiled it down to the fact that it's about two queens at the end of the day. And I do think the show took a while to get around to that. It set up the relationship between these two characters and then it took its time getting to the fact that it was really about these two women at the end of the day. And once it figured that out, I was like, huh, this show actually might have something to say. So I did like that you pulled out that detail. I would like to start, we usually ask, does it hold up? But it just happens. So does it hold up? Doesn't really feel like a good question to ask. I want us to talk a little bit about House of the Dragon compared to Game of Thrones. I want us to analyze some of the strengths and the weaknesses of House of the Dragon. I have a lot to say that might come across more of like my review of it, but this is my podcast and Game of Thrones was such an important story to me. I have a lot to say just generally thematically about the execution of this show. And before I give my two cents on it, because it's probably going to be a long segment I really want to get yours, Laurel. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're a couple of weeks removed from the show airing. And in the weeks that I have absorbed it and sat with it, I'm feeling a little better about it than I was when it was on. And to be very honest, it was on at the same time as Rings of Power. And I'll be totally full disclosure, unabashed. I loved Rings of Power, like almost every second of it. And it just felt like a loving, kind a beautiful fantasy that I was really happy to be uh, swept away into and House of the Dragon felt like it was dragging me down into this sort of mire and muck. And there's part of that that is the Game of Thrones MO, right? You know, so we have 
fantasy, we have medieval fantasy, we have high fantasy inviting us into a more realistic expression of itself in Game of Thrones. And that's something that was always so attractive about that show and the book series. But I'm going to be very open here at the beginning and say that from episode one, House of the Dragon just decided that it was not for me because I'm a person who has, uh, you know, gone through a traumatic birth. And if you're someone who has gone through a traumatic birth or you have uh, unfortunately suffered pregnancy loss or infant loss, this show is going to come right out of the gate and do demonstrable harm to you <laughs> again and again and again. So this is a show where I just kind of never felt safe going into any given scene just because of my level of particular trauma. I know that's not everyone's experience, and I know that Game of Thrones always was showing sexual assault. It was showing uh, domestic abuse. It was showing all kinds of traumatic events uh, over and over. But the fact that House of the Dragon chose one particular trauma to focus its entire season around and iterate just made it a really painful exercise for me to go through. You know, I want to extrapolate on that. In the very first episode, uh, Viserys's queen, I forget her name, says to, Emma. says to Rhaenyra and says, uh, to effect, I'll paraphrase here, to women, their battlefield is giving birth. Their war is giving birth. And it's clearly playing with that theme as it has lots of complicated and traumatic, bloody and births where people die. And like in a war, a war is bloody and brutal and gross and people die. But I really think this was one of the biggest miscues. So not only was it difficult for us knowing that you had given birth to Arthur and it was a traumatic birth, it was not an easy birth, if there is even such a thing. That even the one birth where it looks like everything is medically going well, and it starts after the first time jump, and Renera is giving birth to one of her illegitimate sons, and immediately after that, the queen demands to see the baby, and Renera, fearing for her son's life at the hands of the baby, carries the baby having just given birth who is clearly not physically able to. So even in a, the birth itself is not a medically complicated that results in the loss of the life of the mother or the baby or both, or the suicide of the mother and the baby. Um, it's still really traumatically done because she's got to, to protect her baby. She's got to hand deliver her baby across the entire red keep to the queen to present it. So the queen um, can expect whether it's a bastard or not. So even despite that one medically okay birth, it's still a very traumatic scene. All of the births that are not medically traumatic or complicated are all done off scene. And it's trying to tie in this theme that motherhood, having children as a noble who's expected to inherit the throne or support the throne is itself a form of warfare. And I'm going to be honest, I thought that was some of the most poorly written parts of the series. And I'll tell you why I don't like that metaphor. Because birth, though bloody, though traumatic, though dangerous, is fundamentally about bringing life anew to the universe. It is about a joyous occasion to celebrate new life. No matter how it goes right or wrong, the whole purpose of having children is to have children, is to celebrate the act of life, the act of continuing the human race and celebrating the beauty and majesty of the human race. There is nothing more wonderful than holding your new child new to the world for the first time and to see them raised. Whereas war is about the antithesis of life. It is about destroying life. It's about snuffing life out for the sake of winning the war. Some wars could be more just than others, but at the end, it's about killing humans intentionally using all of our intelligence, our drive, our technology to kill the enemy. Where birth is using all of our intelligence, all of our technology, all of our drive 
to celebrate the human race and bring more life to the human race. And because they're so fundamentally different, war and childbirth, the idea of let's make childbirth so traumatic and so dangerous for the sake of driving home this metaphor does not work for me at all. It's one of the parts of the show, I'm going to get into this, where I thought it just completely erred to land it. I got what it was trying to do, but all it succeeded in being was icky, gross, and mean to these woman characters. Yeah, you know, I'm going to come back to some of this later, I think. I, I do agree with you. For me, some of the hardest stuff to stomach was how little agency and power and bodily autonomy these women were given, particularly in that first episode with Queen Emma as she is trying to give birth to Balon, and then the choice is made for her of what is going to be done to her body, and no one survives that. Uh, then we have Lena's really bizarre suicide by dragon, which I, I just do not understand why that was necessary in this story. It was not a character that we knew well. We met her as a little child, and then we saw her going through a difficult birth and then self-immolating by dragon. And then, of course, we have a really harrowing scene with Rhaenyra, which of all of the, the scenes, I, I, I still am struggling to figure out how I feel about it. I was very much in tears when that scene happened. It was really hard for me to watch. And there was also this intercutting between Rhaenyra in labor and her dragon, showing the kind of primal instincts and primal uh, movements and feelings of this character and of the female energy, which is doing something kind of interesting, but was doing so in a way that... I really had to take time to recover from. And so I'm in this weird spot of like, this was deeply personal to me. And so I feel like I almost can't comment on it, its artistic merit because at the end of the day, art is there to make you feel things and make you feel the gut-wrenching truth of things. But I just didn't have enough distance from that kind of story. That's fair. That is 100% totally fair. I will tell you my impression of House of Dragon. And this is going to sound, I'm going to critique the show. Yeah. I'm going to say things about the show that I thought it did not do well. But listeners, I want you to understand this is not to tear down the show. It is to learn from the show. And it is to hopefully, for me, to have a cathartic experience being understanding the sort of structure, narrative, and bend of House of Dragon to understand my relationship to this material. I do not want to be mean to it. I want to be kind to it. And um, But I am going to say my piece all the same. And yeah, if please. you disagree with me, this is not to change your mind or make you not like the show because I did really genuinely like the show. I wouldn't be doing a midnight myth if I didn't think it was worth talking about. And I did enjoy it, but I want to give my general impressions. And I think motherhood as war was one of the missteps. And let me give you the metaphor of what I think were some of the missteps. And I'm going to talk about it like it's a pie. Let's say you are a baker. You are pretty darn good at it. And you're going to try a new pie. You've had similar types of pies to this one. So you're going to base your recipe off of other recipes, but you're going to try a few new things. And you are going to take all of your time selecting the best ingredients. You're going to take all of your time studying how to make those ingredients into the pie and how to bake the pie. And then you're going to put it in and you're going to bake it and you're going to pull this pie out and you're going to take a bite of it and you're going to be like, it's pie. I wanted this to be the most amazing pie. I thought all of the ingredients were there, but for some reason, the pie just didn't come together to be awesome. That's my impression of the House of Dragon. All of the ingredients were there. They took really, really, really good care to make those ingredients congeal into one awesome narrative story. 
They hired great actors. They hired great set designers. The special effects are amazing. The music is amazing. The editing is great. Yet there is something there that just came across tasting like just a store-bought pie, and it didn't blow me away. I'm going to list a few of the things, and it's going to come down to one point, but I'm going to work up to it. For starters, a thing that I loved about Westeros. Westeros is a big, large continent. Understanding who a character is means understanding who that character is geographically in Westeros. Culturally, yeah. The place is very important. To understand the Starks, we must understand the North. To understand the Greyjoys, we must understand the Iron Irons, etc. and so forth. To understand the Lannisters, the Baratheons, you need to understand Castle Rock and the Stormlands. These lands, these geographies that are ancient have helped sculpt the culture of these people so that they are part and parcel with the land. And these characters have deep connections to their individual kingdoms, so much so that they recite their words like prayers. It is, it, it's amazing knowing that if you're from this part of Westeros, you have this religion, that part you have that religion. This is part of what really sucked me into it. To understand these worlds, you'd have to understand where they came from. That's really absent in House of Dragon. And it's absent in House of Dragon because House of Dragon is geographically small. Most of, if not all of the show, takes place in throne rooms and conference rooms, council chambers, with characters in one place, generally in um, the Red Keep, just sitting there at King's Landing, just sitting there discussing and talking their Machiavellian machinations. It took this huge, sprawling world. And by the way, the geography argument can be also made of Essos, the Dothraki, and the Great Sea. It can be made of all of these different locations. And part of what made Game of Thrones fun was it took characters from one location and put them into another. And it asked us, how would they fare when they're completely out of their element? And by that way, it was telling this very structural story that made this world feel alive. Whereas House of the Dragon felt small. It was just a small group of nobles. There's a lot of characters, but it is still just a small group of nobles in their throne rooms debating how they can one-up each other. And I know to a lot of people will say, well, a lot of the original Game of Thrones was that. Yes, it was, but in the earlier season, seasons one through five in particular, the show felt big. This felt small. And it felt like it wrote Westeros as a character out of the story. That's a really good point that you make because not only does it mostly take place in one location and probably the least interesting location of all of them in King's Landing because King's Landing is just the capital, right? It doesn't have as defined or obvious a culture as some of the other places that feel really very powerfully ingrained in their histories. It wasn't just that it was just King's Landing. It's that it was just a certain type of character. It was just Targaryens and Targaryen allies most of the time, just nobles all locked away talking about how to shore up the succession. And sometimes succession can be interesting but there was no perpendicular, right? We had everybody running on parallel tracks, all trying to figure out the succession, and there was no fly in the ointment. There was no one who was coming at it from a perpendicular uh, angle, no one who was lifted out of their circumstances and put somewhere where they didn't belong. They were all just kind of working toward the same thing, even with different motivations even like Laris Strong, who is some kind of evil Machiavellian Littlefinger character. He seems like he might be on a different track than others, but at the end of the day, he's just involved in the same kind of messy Machiavellian machinations that they all are. So there was nothing that was coming at it from a different angle to make things interesting or shake them up. The most interesting episodes to me were like the boar hunt, where they left court and it was kind of this pastoral epic where everything was being worked out in metaphor and characters were in interesting situations where they didn't belong, 
Or I really liked that we finally got to see the Stormlands. That was really cool. I, I did like when they finally took characters out of their element, but that happened so rarely. I agree. And that brings me to my next point, lack of commoners. This is a real issue for the show for me. One of the things that Game of Thrones did so well is that we constantly had commoner characters and this allowed us to see, you know, the medieval society that Westeros is based on is very, very vertical. You have it very stratified. You have the king at the top, then you have the lords, then the lesser lords, then the lesser knights, then the commoners. And in Game of Thrones, we could see a decision made by a king or a lord. We got to see what that decision mattered to the common people. We get to see the effects of the War of the Five Kings. One of the things that Game of Thrones did really well was the deconstruction of the, the standard fantasy tropes and saying, what would these things actually look like to real people? And the only way to do that is to have characters that are commoners. And right from the gate, season one of Game of Thrones, from Old Dan to Micah the Butcher's Boy, and on through most of the season, towards the last seasons, that starts to stop as they like get out of the George R. R. Martin source material and start writing original material. You don't see that as much. But the fact that there are no commoners that we get to see who are living and dying underneath the decisions of these nobles, which really exposes the hypocrisy and brutality of the medieval feudal system, what we are left with is no lesson to be learned from the Machiavellian civil war politics other than it's Machiavellian civil war-esque politics. And that would then bring me to my third point, and I think the most crucial point of what I thought was missing. There is no hero. And you can't tell fantasy without a hero. What made Game of Thrones great wasn't that it was cynical. It was that that took traditionally written fantasy heroes and applied them into a world that was cynical and made their mistakes matter so that we were asking ourselves, is it even possible to be a hero in this world? Or was heroism itself just a lie told by the nobles to keep the commoners placated? And this is no better embodied than the downfall of Ed Stark, Rob Stark, Catelyn Stark, Sansa Stark, etc. The Stark's downfall is... Jon Snow, Daenerys Targaryen. Yeah, you know, the list goes on. It goes on and on to ask ourselves, is it even possible in a cynical world for there to be heroes? That's what made it interesting. Not knowing, still not knowing who the show wants me to side with in this civil war making it simply about nobles trying to one-up each other without any other deeper meaning about what this says about medieval politics, what it says about the possibility to have heroes in this world and in this time. Is it even, without, without that, I'm just left with a bunch of really wealthy jerks talking about who wants to be the wealthiest jerk. Well, and it's not even just that the show won't tell me who to root for in the Civil War. It's that it's giving some sort of interesting character facets to both sides, particularly Rhaenyra and Alicent, but it's not giving me what either of these women would stand for as rulers. I have no idea what kind of queen either of them would be. Part of that is because I don't know any commoners and I don't know how the politics are affecting them. And part of it is just that all I see from either of these characters is a hungry desire to rule or have their offspring rule for the sake of ruling. I do not see, and I do not buy any of the, we have to fulfill Aegon's dream. Like that is just so ridiculously mapped onto the story as an Easter egg. But I just don't believe that either of these characters truly have the kingdom's best interests in mind. It does give me a little bit of that in the finale with Rhaenyra, with her restraint and her, you know, pulling out that famous Game of Thrones line of not wanting to be queen of the ashes. I, I get a hint of it there, 
But apart from that, even though I do find the characters interesting and largely well-written and beautifully acted, I just do not know if either of them would be a good ruler. And I would like to have some idea if I'm going to root for one of them at all. And I think there is something to be said about wanting to live in a world of moral gray and complexity where characters are not just blanket good or bad. And I think that is a really interesting place to be. But again, to contrast to Game of Thrones, we have noble Edark Stark, who is stoic and gets everything right, except he's got a bastard there, yeah. right from season one. And his best friend that he helped put on the throne is a bad king. Yeah, so like there is a there is a way to do it to telegraph to the audience this is clearly who the hero should be and yet they are very complicated and it's and they're going to make weird and uncomfortable decisions another good one that game of thrones gets right right from the get go is tyrion tyrion yeah. is literally on the bad guys team but is absolutely telegraphed as a hero who is morally complicated who feels duty bound to help his family succeed against the heroes. And the whole time you can't help but root for him because his charm, his wit, his intelligence all telegraphs that this is someone whose journey we want to go on. And conversely, you can have someone that is just pure out villainy that the show tells you right from the gate, you should absolutely despise in Jamie Lannister who tries to murder a child while having incestuous sex with his sister. In episode one. Who can go on a journey where you're like, oh my God, I see what this character is going through and I'm rooting for, the, I'm actively rooting for the attempted child murderer's redemption. So like, you can, in this world, do all of the things that they're wanting to do, but it starts with saying, okay, we do need to know who the hero is. We do need to know who the villain is. For example, another one, Tyrion Lannister. Absolutely a bad guy. We don't want Tyrion Lannister to win. Tywin Lannister? Or, I'm sorry, Tywin yeah. Lannister, pardon me, to win. We don't want him to win, but I can't take my eyes off that performance. No. I can't help but admire that character. I can't help but think that character really understands this world probably better than any other character and really understands what it takes to survive in this world, but goddamn, I want him to die. You know, and so I think it's it's possible to do it, but it starts with knowing clearly, telling the audience, this is our hero, this is our villain. At the end of it, I do admire that I think I think all of the themes in the season finale coalesce really well. And in the season finale, Renera has a miscarriage. It's tragic, and I think way too graphic in the way they filmed it. But because of that, because she is a mother, when all of the men around her are saying, go to war, burn the ground, burn the ground, she's just like, hold on, hold on. I'm a mother, right? I just went through a traumatic birth. Let's stop and think. Let's at least figure out who's on our side before we call our banners and go to war. You know, and I think that was a good moment where her motherness led her to make a good decision in her queenness. And I think really linked those themes really well yeah. and made me think, okay, so I can, I, all right, so I can want Rhaenyra to be queen because the show has pretty telegraphed that Aegon is not fit to be king. Yeah, no, he's a drunk and uh, a louse and just pretty much worthless. Raped a commoner. Yeah. You know, like, and, and so like, it's telegraphed pretty clearly that this this man that's now the king, this young man that's now the king, really should not be the king. And so I feel like I am I'm now on team Renera, let Renera win. But she married her uncle, who's an asshole. And like he's he just simply is like he murders his first wife. Um he lead, it's not written well, but his actions lead to his second wife's suicide. The entire time he's lusting over his niece. And then he, in the finale, strangles her because she doesn't want to go to war right now. Like, there's all of these things that I'm like, you married this guy who's awful. Yeah, no, Damon is the worst. You know, so it's like, and great performance by Matt Smith. Great, yeah. And 
interesting character. And, but I also feel like, you know, so she's got this really big jerk on her side. Alicent seems like she's gone completely into Machiavellianness. And I'm, I'm just not sure going forward what I want to see. And maybe the point is that Targaryens are all bad. And that's what it is. We shouldn't want Targaryens to be in kings or at all. But I think an even better point would be that kings themselves suck. Right. The monarchy does not work. Anyway, I've gone on and on about my thoughts about it. Anything you'd like to contribute uh, in addition to that, Laurel? No, I, I I really agree with you about a lot of it. I am curious to see where things go with season two. You know, we haven't even addressed the time jumps, which, you know, are what they are. There are fantastic actors on both sides of the time, on all three sides of the time jumps. There were a couple of them. All of the performances are excellent across the board, but it just felt, I think everybody feels the same way that we do, that it was just unnecessary. And if you were going to do multiple seasons of this anyway, at least give me one full season of the young actors who look old enough and are old enough to play adults. So it was a curious decision on their part, but you know, we got to see more Olivia Cook, and I've been following her career with great interest. Uh, anyway, so I appreciate everything that you brought to the table. Would you mind if I segued into a little bit of history? That's usually my job, So, but no, I would not mind. Great. So I really want to talk about the historical period on which House of the Dragon is based. Everybody knows at this point that George R.R. R. Martin loosely based the A Song of Ice and Fire books on the War of the Roses in the late Middle Ages of English history. But he based Fire and Blood, and particularly this section of Fire and Blood, which became House of the Dragon, on an earlier period in English history that's mostly known as the Anarchy. The Anarchy is a proper name for a civil war, which was fought over the succession of the English crown in the 12th century. One of my favorite centuries, actually, when it comes to it in the uh, Middle Ages. I love that century. It really was a very pivotal century. And at this time, the conquest of William the Conqueror, the Norman conquests, was only a generation past. So for most people, it was still in living memory that the Duke of Normandy had set sail across the English Channel and taken the crown of England by force, turning England, this Anglo-Saxon state, into an Anglo-Norman court. So at this time, England and Normandy are still pretty much tied and tangled up. There's lots of conflict over who has control over their, those territories, and the people, that being the English and the Normans, are just beginning to coalesce into kind of one empire or one people. They're culturally figuring themselves out. Now, one major event kicked off the anarchy, and that event is known as the White Ship Disaster. Before I tell you about the White Ship, I'm going to give you just a little bit of background on this. So the English king at this time is Henry I, and he's the son of William the Conqueror, but he's the fourth son. At this time, succession lines are a little more unclear than they are later in the Middle Ages. So it doesn't always rely on primogeniture or the firstborn son becoming the king. And William the Conqueror very much had a favorite son named William Rufus, who everyone thought would become the king. But he did end up deciding to divide his territories between his sons, which never ends well. And of course, proves really disastrous when he dies in 1087 as the sons all start fighting for control of the different territories that he has power over. So Henry ends up gaining power and putting himself on the English throne pretty much by seizing it as quickly as he can after the death of that favorite son, William Rufus, who was being groomed for the throne. Then, to solidify his power, Henry invades the Duchy of Normandy, which at that point is controlled by his other brother, Robert Curtos, and he puts down Robert's army and says, I'm king of everything. The Duchy of Normandy in France. Yes, so the Duchy of Normandy is technically a French... It's a French, yeah. Yes, but William is also Norman, so there is this really complicated relationship between the French and the Normans and the English. Uh, you might know more about that than me, but it, 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 gets, it gets spicy at times. 
So anyway, Henry is now king. He is now, spicy the right adjective. It's very spicy. <laughs> it gets it gets spicy. Okay. It gets okay, spicy okay, between cool. England and Normandy. Because and I'm pretty certain there weren't a lot of spices in food at that time. No, it's I'm, mostly just saffron and uh, I don't know. And a little bit of salt. No, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm totally throwing you off your point. It's fine. So anyway, so Henry is now king of England. He's got control over Normandy. He notably at this time has been just making love with all of the women across England and the continent, and he has like a thousand illegitimate sons, but he only has one legitimate son within wedlock, and that son is named William Adeline. Adeline is a moniker. It's not necessarily a name. It mostly just translates to heir to the throne or successor. So essentially his name is Prince William. We fast forward to 1120, Henry and all his nobles are in Normandy. They're in a town called Barfleur, and they're celebrating another victory there when a ship's captain, whose name is Thomas Fitzstephen, offers his extraordinarily beautiful vessel, the White Ship, to carry the nobles across the English Channel to England. Thomas's father had been the captain of the ship that actually brought William the Conqueror in 1066. So everybody thinks this is a really auspicious move. It would be very cool to have the nobles transported on the ship of that captain's son. King Henry already has transportation arranged, but his heir and a number of the other nobles are permitted to board the white ship. So the story goes that once everyone boards the ship, William Adeline sends for a whole bunch of beer and wine, and everybody gets just hammered before they even leave the harbor. A few people get off the ship before they go, including someone who's going to become extremely important later on, and that's the king's favorite nephew, Stephen of Blois, and he gets off the ship due to an upset stomach, see diarrhea. The ship finally departs, and the drunk passengers are all egging the captain on, being like, let's race the king's ship. I bet we can beat him to England. They've already set sail, but we can totally overtake him. This ship is so cool. And the white ship just goes for it. The captain is like, yeah, we can catch up for him. And it ends up striking a rock only a nautical mile outside of the coast of Normandy, and it capsizes. And all 300 passengers die. Everybody dies, except for one person, and that's a butcher who like clings to a raft and makes it back to shore and tells the story to a chronicler. Damn. So William Adeline, the only heir, the only legitimate son of the king, drowns and dies in the white ship disaster, and English history is changed forever. Just for the record, if I may interject... Boating and alcohol never go well together. Never. Absolutely. And if you're a ship's captain, maybe don't listen to the drunk guys who are like, go faster, go faster. I, I, I'm just assuming that the captain is also drunk. <laughs> I, I don't know if that is true. I'm just assuming so the captain's the also drunk. The story actually goes, and we kind of have to take it with a grain of salt because only one person survived, and so it could be exaggerated a little bit. But the story goes that the captain survived the original uh, striking of the rock and then he asked someone if the king's son was alive and they were like no the king's son died and then he threw himself into the english channel and drowned himself rather than facing the king it's a dark story it's something that probably would have happened in an episode of the house of dragon <laughs> absolutely so of course now that the king's son is dead and there's no legitimate heir to the throne everything is thrown into chaos and henry is struggling to shore up his succession his wife is dead he can't acknowledge any of his bastards and his only other legitimate heir is a daughter whose name is matilda and there's no pathway at this point there's no clarity around whether a female, whether a woman can rule or whether a, a woman can inherit the succession. So the king, Henry, marries again, but he doesn't produce an heir. They have no children together. So he's pretty much forced to acknowledge Matilda as the heir to his throne. And he strong arms all of his barons into pledging themselves to her. Eventually they do, but it seems like it's pretty begrudging. People don't want to accept a woman as their queen. Things are even more complicated because Matilda, meanwhile, is married. She has, uh, she's married at first to the Holy Roman Emperor, and then he dies. She's widowed. She marries Geoffrey of Anjou, also known as 
Geoffrey Plantagenet, and his territory borders Normandy. So they're the natural enemies of Normandy. So all these Anglo-Norman courtiers are like, absolutely not. We don't want an Angevin on the throne because they're literally our enemies. So there's a lot of hostility to the idea of Matilda's rule. Now, Henry officially, he dies in 1135, and that's when the anarchy begins. Old Tummy Troubles himself, Stephen of Blois, who got off the boat at the last second, shows up and just like Henry before him, crowns himself before anyone can blink. He books it to Winchester as soon as he finds out that the king is dead. He puts a crown on his head. He has the Pope certify it and he is king. The public acknowledges it. It is done. And Matilda is just now hearing about it. She's in Normandy at the time, so she can't get there in order to get herself crowned in time. This kicks off almost two decades of fighting. Each of them claims a piece of territory. Stephen officially sits on the throne of England, but Matilda is calling herself Empress, which she can do because she was married to the Holy Roman Emperor at one time. And she is basically ruling this huge territory that she gets loyalty for in the southwest of England. And this continues until 1153. There's just widespread fighting, and it's often called the anarchy, not just because there was no clear king or queen, but because there was this breakdown in law and order. Most contemporary historians are like, it probably wasn't as chaotic as people describe it as, but it was definitely a dark time to be in England. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, there's a really beautiful quote Never before had there been greater wretchedness in the country, and they said openly that Christ and his saints slept, end quote. Oh, man. I know. Don't you love it when the chroniclers get really poetic? I do. So how does this all resolve? Slowly and kind of messily, Matilda ends up retreating to Normandy. She lets her son, Henry Fitz Empress, take control of the campaign because she's getting old at this point and her son is coming of age so he can lead the war. This Henry ends up invading England again in 1153, but everybody is so worn out from fighting and so disengaged from the outcome that the church manages to broker a truce. Stephen and Henry... Uh, negotiate for peace, and that ends with the Treaty of Wallingford, which left Stephen on the throne, but officially recognized Henry, the son of Matilda, as the heir and successor. So by 1154, Stephen was dead, and Henry II was crowned, thereby laying the foundations of what became the Angevin Empire. So it's a really interesting long and winding story. And I skipped over a lot of it because, you know, it's 20 years pretty much of fighting between these two warring factions and also this really interesting coming together of different cultures, the Anglo-Saxon and the Norman cultures, as well as this Angevin influence that's coming in as well. There's a lot that I skipped over, but I tried to keep it brief for you. But some of the things I'm meditating on with House of the Dragon are how, at this point in history, in the 12th century, there was this really obviously messy reaction to the idea of female rule, especially on the throne of England. A queen didn't legitimately rule England until 1553 with Queen Mary. That's 400 years after the anarchy and the reign of Stephen, 400 years after it's first put into people's mind that they need to bend the knee to Matilda, then we finally get a queen. And she rules for like a hot minute before Elizabeth comes in. Game of Thrones, that's a similar story. It's 200 years before Cersei is installed on the throne and that's only under duress because all of her you know, heirs and children are dead. So I just want to kind of open that up, this idea of female rule being so complicated over time and the historical implications of that. A few things I want to say is that symbolic representations of power and the rituals behind symbolic representations of power matter. It matters in the show of House of Dragon that Aegon is able to be crowned in front of the Sept. He holds Aegon's sword. He has Aegon's name. The public is there. He is in the capital. 
all of these things add legitimacy to his claim in the respect that Stephen rushes to uh, get crowned and then is crowned by the Pope. And all of these things are legitimate. Similar to that vein, the patriarchy is a way that gives symbolic power and representation of power to men. And it says power belongs in the hands of men. It does like legitimate political authority. When I say power, it belongs in the hands of men and um, it should not belong in the hands of women so that we must rush through all of the rituals and everything to make sure that power does not go into the hands of a woman, but yet goes into the hands of a man. And I think, you know, that, that lesson that you teach that it was 400 years after this until there was a legitimate woman queen that everyone recognized. And, but there haven't been that many actual Queens of England. Five, you know, and here we are in America. We've never had a woman president. So still the idea that power come legitimate power comes from a patriarchal gender stereotype that endures through our time now. And in this respect, we can ask ourselves, are we any more enlightened than the anarchy? Are we any more enlightened than they were at the dance of the dragons doing everything in our power to make sure there isn't a queen and the, the way that we have not had a female president in America still. So I think that's a really unique and interesting um, history to bring up as someone who is considers himself fairly well read in medieval history. I knew absolutely nothing about this era and time. So that's really, really cool. It very neatly maps into what we see in season one of the house of dragon. It does, but it does so in an interesting, very George R.R. R. Martin way, which is that he's obviously not lifting one-to-one from the history, but he's sort of stirring it into an interesting pot, right? So much like with Game of Thrones, the veins of these historical periods are running through the story, and several characters can stand in for the historical figures, but it's not always a total clear map, right? So one of the things I thought was really interesting was that at times, Damon seems like he's the equivalent of Stephen, right? And at others, it's clearly Aegon II is the Stephen counterpart. And then at the same time, both Rhaenys and Rhaenyra can map onto Matilda, though Rhaenyra is the more obvious parallel. And, you know, one thing that I found really fascinating was that in the historical accounts of the period, Stephen tends to be described as a rather weak king, perhaps because he wasn't able to put down this lengthy challenge to his throne. But that quote about Christ and all his saints sleeping continues to say that nothing grew in the kingdom during Stephen's reign, during the anarchy. So it likens him to this kind of Fisher King archetype. And then Henry I, his reign is also characterized often as being somewhat weak, and primarily because his time in power was largely peaceful. So I think there's, at the same time as there's this meditation on female rule, there's also this lesson about how deeply the public's conception of a monarch's legacy, at least in the Middle Ages, was emotionally influenced by the perception of kings as commanders, kings as generals and as military leaders. You know, they're conquerors, they lead armies, they swing swords, and this contributes to the sort of misogynistic rejection of female rule for so many centuries. And so that kind of brings me back to this idea of childbirth and labor as warfare, because there's part of me that wonders if House of the Dragon is attempting to reframe the idea of women as generals, women as martial in some ways, in order to legitimize the idea of women in power, but I think something still falls short. I end this show with the question of, does this story need to be told, or is it just telling me again and again that a woman will never be president? Like, <laughs> Well, your point about having to show women as generals, and they're the generals of childbirth, 
as a way to legitimize them having power is itself an artifact of patriarchal thinking. Uh, 100%. It, it is saying we need to masculine up the feminine so yeah, that it can be... dragon up the feminine. It, it can be legitimate. And in reality, you don't really need to do that because I can speak from someone who lives with an amazing woman who is the mother of my children. Tough as nails. Women power is phenomenal in and of itself. Different from masculine power, but is still phenomenal in and of itself and something to be praised and to admire. You know, I'll also say this. I think it fits neatly into what the dragons represent in this show, because I do think this show uses dragons in a different way. One, it paints the dragons as pretty much tamed throughout most of the show and they are sidelined. They are props used for a display of strength but we never really see the dragon's strength until the dragon fight at the end. And when we recognize that once unleashed, the dragon riders don't have anywhere near the control they think they do. And this is a really good metaphor for when a civil war occurs. It is unleashing the dragon. And once it happens, do the generals really fully control it or does the dragon the war itself become its own fire breathing beast one that destroys the realm even when no one else wants to fight anymore it continues burning like a wildfire and i think that's an interesting thought that we should meditate on in very polarized time at least in america i think a lot of other you know societies out there are having very polarized times too but in particular just as an american that's what i know in America, having really polarized time where there's lots of vitriol and everybody wants to take to the streets to burn their enemy, it's like, hey, once the dragon's out, we don't really control it once it, it's, it has its own agenda and that is simply to burn. Yeah. And I do think in that respect, the end of that show, the finale, I thought really nailed it and like, Oh man, they don't control the dragons. They're not tame. They just haven't been unleashed. And once you unleash the dragon, it is unstoppable. And I do think there's a, a thing to think about as we think of where America is at. Right now, if you pull Americans, like 65% of Americans, I'm muffing this poll. This could be wrong. A but, disproportionate, surprising amount of Americans. Think a civil war is likely. Yeah think that we're about to unleash the dragon of civil war. And this is a show that is on the precipice of unleashing the dragon of civil war. And once it's unleashed, there's not a lot of control. You may want to do a show of strength and it might turn out with killing your cousin. Yeah. You know, I did find that one of the more interesting and exciting elements of the show that it finally unleashed the dragons and was like, even if you are the house of the dragon, even if you are the Targaryens and you claim to have dragon blood and you sleep with a dragon's egg in your cradle when you're a baby, this is still a force beyond your possible imagination. And that's something that's sort of missing from this show, right? This sense of like grand mythic unknowability, right? That finally was let go in this final episode. And that's exciting. I agree. So a lot of thoughts. I, I just want to end with some things that I thought the show did really well. Yeah. I just want to go on record that I'm going to watch season two. I am all in on this show. We had mentioned the cast a few times. I really did think the casting was phenomenal. Patty Considine just deserves every single award. I could do an entire episode of The Midnight Myth, and maybe we will, on the character Tristan... And, oh, Kristen Cole. Oh, yeah. Kristen, sorry. And Tristan's the medieval knight from yeah. Arthurian legend. I could I do a whole them. episode on him too, yeah. And how that's a deconstruction of the archetype of the romantic knight and how that the romantic knight is put in impossible choices to be both in love with the woman he serves but also chaste. Yeah. And how that that is just always a recipe for failure. I really, really loved The Hunt one, because hunting is an important thing in Game of Thrones season one. And so I love that they did the hunt. And I loved that Viserys was so emasculated 
where Renera was so rejuvenated and that was such a good episode. was much more masculine in the way that she killed the boar. I loved all of, even though I didn't fully, I didn't think they they told the story well of the shipping lanes and the crab people that were trying to disrupt the the city. Like felt like the or pardon me the shipping lanes. I felt like in the beginning that was a little muddled. The stepstones, yeah. But I really loved Matt Damon going out there and slaughtering them all. I like that you said Matt Damon because it's Matt Smith, but he plays Damon. Yeah, not my best moment. Sorry, <laughs> Matt Damon. Matt Damon. No, that's a South Park thing. I'm sorry, Team America thing. Team I don't even America. know. I'm going to wrap it here. I am uh, making way too many mistakes to continue podcasting. What else you got, Laurel? I just think it's time for a Negroni Sabagliato with Prosecco in it. And until next time, be kind.